Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This here in the sanctuary can open their Bibles, please, to the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be a white or blue paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. So you can grab one of those Bibles, and we're going to be reading from chapter 4 of the book of Esther, and that appears on page 234, page 234 of the paperback Bibles. Uh, I was very uh, uh, privileged to be able to attend the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis this past week, Monday through Wednesday. Got to hear John Piper, and Tim Keller, and Kevin DeYoung, and Legan Duncan, and all sorts of, of great speakers. It was a great time. Got to see Jesse Delaplane, former staff member here at New Life from years ago. Got to see her. Um, one of the speakers said something that I found very interesting and was relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. The speaker said that uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament basically teach the same thing. Basically teach the same thing, except for one thing, and that is that the Old Testament is easier. Yeah, I said that right. I said that as I intended. The Old Testament is easier. And what the speaker meant, and I agree with him, uh, is this, that the New Testament often speaks in kind of abstract theological categories, but in the Old Testament what we get are vivid pictures of what the New Testament teaches. And the book of Esther is a perfect example of that. One of our very favorite verses, probably you would identify with this, is Romans 8.28, which tells us that God intends all things for good. He works all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Many of you know that verse and you cling to that verse. Now, that, that's a, a wonderful statement. It's a little bit, though, in the abstract. When we go to the Old Testament, and particularly to a book like Esther, what we see is a picture of that verse. We see it playing out on the ground in the nuts and bolts of difficult daily life. And that's what we're going to be considering here today in the book of Esther. And what Esther teaches us is that even when God seems to be absent, he is actually very, very present. And so if you're feeling like, where is God today? He seems absent in your life. I hope this book brings some encouragement to you. So... Um, we are in a sermon series called Route 66, and what we've been doing is going through the entire Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started at Genesis, we're going through Revelation, and we've reached the book of Esther. So as is my custom, here's a little bit of background about Esther. Uh, again, we're not sure who wrote this book. Some say it might have been Esther, but we're not sure. Uh, all we are sure of is that it was written by someone inspired by the Holy Spirit to record God's words. Date written <clears throat> probably between 485 and 464 before the time of Christ. Themes include providence, God's protection of his people, and this idea that evil does not go unpunished. Significant events, well you're going to hear the significant events because I'm going to tell you the story here uh, in just a moment. But Esther is taking place, or the events of Esther are taking place during the same time of the last two books that we studied, we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah. And you'll remember that 
God's people had been exiled to Babylon, and Babylon was taken over by Persia, and there was a king named Cyrus who was inspired by God's spirit to send God's people back to their homeland. And so a bunch of exiles went back uh, under Zerubbabel's leadership, and through Ezra's leadership, the temple was rebuilt, and then later, under Nehemiah's leadership, exiles went back and built the wall, but not everybody went back. Some exiles went back home, but some stayed in Persia. And the book of Esther tells us about these people who are remaining in Persia still as exiles under the uh, oversight of uh, Persia. So uh, Esther is a very unique book. I mean, one of the very unique things about it is that the, the center of this book is a very strong, godly, competent, capable woman. Now, there's nothing unusual about a strong, capable, godly woman, but sometimes Christianity gets criticized for being kind of demeaning to women. And as we look at the book of Esther, it would be hard to make that case because here's an example, again, of a very godly and capable woman who does some extraordinary things here. But here's another reason why Esther is somewhat unique, and that is because it never mentions the name of God. We don't see God's name mentioned in the book of Esther. And I think one thing we can take from that is this idea that sometimes God seems to be absent. But even when he seems absent, he's actually very present. And you'll see what I mean as we look at this. So here's what I'm going to do. It's a little bit unusual because, I mean, Esther is a story from start to finish. It's, it's a story that begins in one place and has a very definitive end. And so really the only way to really get a handle on uh, its meaning is, is for me to give you a, just an overview of the story. So I'm going to take a few minutes to do that. We'll get to our text here in chapter 4. But let me summarize chapters 1 through 3. We'll read chapter 4. Then I'll summarize the rest of the book. And then I'm going to tell you a couple things that I think we are supposed to learn from the book of Esther. All right? So here's the story. Here's how it begins. In chapter 1, there's a king named Ahasuerus. He's king in Persia. And he throws a party. And he invites all of his friends and officials to this party, and they're drinking, and they're eating, and they're having this great time. And uh, the king is probably drunk, and he decides that he's going to call the queen to come in and show herself off in front of all of her friends. This is a very beautiful woman, and the king wants to show her off. Her name is Queen Vashti. And so the king calls her, and she refuses to come. Uh, maybe she's used to this kind of uh, uh, mistreatment from her husband, and she refuses, and that enrages the king. And so the king deposes her from her throne, removes her as queen, and then sets out to find a new queen. Now, at about this time, we're introduced, as chapter 2 begins, to a man named Mordecai. Uh, by the way, here's King Ahasuerus of Persia and Mordecai. Mordecai, we learn, is a Jew. And we're told in chapter 2 that he was one of the uh, Jewish people who were exiled to Babylon. And so he is one of these exiles who is staying there uh, in that country. And he happens to have a um, cousin whose parents had died and she had no one to take her in. And so Mordecai took, took her in as kind of his adopted daughter. And this woman's name is Esther. Esther. Now, Mordecai and Esther are cousins. Mordecai is quite a bit 
older than Esther, but uh, Mordecai does this very gracious act and, and takes Esther in. We learn that Esther is a very beautiful woman, very striking woman. And so when the king decides to look for a new queen, he holds something like a Miss Persia contest. You know, a little bit like the Miss America contest, but the Miss Persia contest, where he wants all of these women to come forward and show themselves off in their beauty, and Esther participates in this. And so she gets all made up, and she looks beautiful, and she captures the attention of this king, and the king makes her queen. Queen Esther. Now, uh, Esther is a Jew. Mordecai is a Jew. But most people don't know that. And they have tried to keep that secret, their Jewish heritage. But Esther then becomes queen. Well, about this time, we discover that Mordecai learns about a plot that two guys in Persia were hatching to have the king killed. And we don't know really how this happened, if he overheard it or whatever, but Mordecai comes into this information. These two people are going to kill the king. Well, Mordecai now has a friend in high places, right? His cousin, Esther, is now queen. So the king tells Esther about this. Esther tells the king. And the king is able to foil this plot, and these two guys who were seeking to kill him are killed themselves, executed themselves. Well, we have another individual that is introduced in the story in chapter 3. And this guy's name is Haman. And he's called Haman the Agagite. Well, if you take off the I-T-E at the end, you have the word Agag. You might remember that name, Agag, from earlier in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 15, do you remember that God, or Samuel actually, had told Saul to kill Agag because Agag was the leader of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the arch enemy of God's people. And Agag was their leader. And remember, Saul wouldn't do it, and so Samuel had to step in and kill Agag. But what we're told here is that Haman is a descendant of Agag. In other words, he is a descendant of an arch enemy of God's people. So that should tell you something about this man. This is a wicked man. He's an evil man. And he's a very self-centered man. He's a very vain man. And he loves it when he walks through the town and people stand up to honor him. He gets a big kick out of that. People standing up to honor him as he walks through. But there's one guy who won't stand up when Haman walks through. And that man's name is Mordecai. Mordecai won't do it. And it enrages Haman. And he becomes so upset that he decides to issue a decree or go to the king and have a decree issued that would call for the annihilation of all the Jews, to kill them all. And so we see that, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany, for instance, under Adolf Hitler, that was not the first time that an effort was made to kill the Jews. Haman attempted this. And um, that leads us up, finally, to chapter 4. So, got the picture? There's an edict to kill the Jews. Esther, Jewish lady, is queen. And Mordecai now is going to come to Esther and ask her to do something about this. And so now finally we are to our text. So please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Esther chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 17 verses. Esther chapter 4. So, when Mordecai learned all that had been done with this edict to kill the Jews, 
Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, that's the decree to have the Jews killed, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Uh, Father, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and minds to behold wonderful things in your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay. So, we're kind of in the middle of the story here, right? Mordecai is gone and asked for Esther to intercede on behalf of the people. And Esther says, uh, you know, I can't really do that because there's this law that says if I do, I'll be killed. <laughs> and Mordecai says, well, you know, could it be that everything that's happened so far has actually brought you to a place where this is what you actually should do anyway? And Esther responds and says, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I will go to the king. And so starting in verse 5, we'll come back to verse 4 in a little bit, but starting there in verse 5, the story continues. And so here's what Esther does. In order to make an appeal to the king, she calls for a feast. And she calls Haman and the king in for this feast, and they're eating and drinking and 
king says, what do you want, Esther? And she says, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what I want. I'll tell you my request. Tomorrow, uh, I'm going to hold another feast. So she's biding her time, apparently, and says, let's, let's do this tomorrow. And so the king and Haman agree to do this tomorrow. And Haman then leaves this situation overjoyed. He's so happy. He's been invited to another feast with the king and the queen. And he's walking home. And, of course, he walks past Mordecai again. And Mordecai won't get up. And he's enraged about that again. And so by the time he gets home, he's telling his wife and his friends how, uh, what a wonderful thing it is that he has been invited to this feast. But then he says, but you know what? I just can't really enjoy it as long as that guy Mordecai out there will not stand up for me. And so his wife and, the, and friends, they say, well, we got an idea. How about you build some gallows and have Mordecai killed? You can have him executed on that. And Haman says, you know, that is a good idea. Let's do it. And then chapter 6 begins, and we shift back to the king. And the king, we're told, is having a sleepless night. He gets a case of insomnia. He can't sleep, so he asks for the book of memorable deeds to be brought and so this book is brought, and apparently he wants something to kind of help him sleep. And he's reading through this book, and all of a sudden he notices this story about a guy who uncovered a plot to kill him one time. And he says, who, who is this person? And, well, they find out it's Mordecai. And the king says, what? I didn't know about this. Mordecai uncovered a plot that was going to have me killed? You mean he saved my life? What has been done for this man? And they say, actually... Nothing. And just at that time, it says in the story, just at that time, Haman happened to show up. And so they invite Haman in, and the king says to Haman, Haman, how should I honor a person that I delight in? And Haman is thinking, all right. <laughs> Clearly he's talking about me. Delight in me. And the king responds and says, Okay, here's what I want you to do, Haman. I want you to go get some robes and I want, want you to get a horse. And Haman's probably like, Yeah, 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 okay, what? And put it on Mordecai. Because Mordecai is the one who uncovered this plot. Haman, go do this and put him on a horse and lead him around town. Talk about <laughs> humiliation for Haman. Total humiliation, but he does that, responds to the king's decree, command, and does that. And then just about that time, we see that Haman is called to go back to the second feast. The second feast, it's time. And so Esther is there welcoming the king and Haman, and they come in, and they have this second feast. Same thing is happening, lots of drinking and eating, and they're having a wonderful time. And the king says, come on, Esther, what is it that you want to request? And finally, the, that Esther says, okay, I'll tell you, here's the deal. There was an edict issued for the destruction of my people. And this is distressing us. And if it would please you, O king, we would sure love for that to be reversed. And the king says, what, what are you talking about? Now, the king did issue the decree, so he must have been a forgetful person. But he says, who, who, who asked for this? And Esther says, Haman did. Haman asked for this. Of course, Haman's right there in the room. 
And the king is enraged by this. He's angry. He, he leaves. He goes out into the palace garden, apparently, to just kind of relax a little bit or chill. And he's just hanging out there. And at this time, Haman is realizing what's about to happen, that he's about to lose his life. So he's begging Esther, oh, please save me. And he gets down on his knees, apparently. And at about that time, the king comes back in. And at just that time, he sees Haman clutching the queen in such a way that it appears that he's assaulting her. And that's the way the king reads it. And he says, that's it. Haman, you are to be executed. And it just so happens that there's some gallows nearby. <laughs> gallows that Haman had created to kill Mordecai, and the king says, have Haman killed on those gallows. And that's exactly what happens. And so Esther and Mordecai are then exalted because of what had been discovered, and they go to the king again. They say, king, you know, we need this edict to be reversed. And the king says, I'm sorry, you know what? I can't do it. I can't reverse that edict to destroy the Jews. And the reason why is because a king's decree can never be overturned. But he says, there is something I can do. I can issue another decree. And this decree would give permission to the Jews to defend themselves if anybody attacks them. And they're like, okay, that's good. Let's do that. And so the decree is issued, and, and that's what happens. When Jew, the Jews' enemies come after them, the, the Jews actually rise up, and, and they destroy their enemies, and they take mastery over them, is what the text says. They take mastery over the Jews, or over their enemies. And, and we find out then, near the end of the book, chapters 9, 8, 9, and 10, that there's something significant going on about that day, because when Haman wanted the Jews to be killed, what he did is he rolled a die, kind of, it's called a lot, to try to figure out when that day would be. And decreed that this would happen on this day. And well, when that day came, that's not what happened. It wasn't that the Jews were destroyed. It was that the Jews were taking mastery over their enemies on that same day. But the way that day was figured out was through the casting of a lot. Well, the word for lot is pure, P-U-R, P-U-R. And so what we learn here at the end is that this is the uh, origin of the Feast of Purim, a holiday that Jews still celebrate today. The way God reversed events in such a way that he rescued his people from certain destruction. And in fact, the Feast of Purim was celebrated March 20 and 21, just a, a few weeks ago in the year 2019. And, um, and, and that's the story. That's the story. Mordecai is exalted, and uh, the Jews are saved. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Just, just two things, because the, the, the New Testament does say that the Old Testament is written for our instruction. And that would include this book. That would include this book of uh, Esther. Two things. Number one, God is sovereign over every circumstance of your life. That's clearly what we're supposed to, to learn here. Now, again, God is not mentioned. So how do we know that? Well, we, we know that because he is implicit. He's implicit everywhere on the pages of this story. I mean, we have all these things that just happen to occur. Esther just happens to become queen. Mordecai just happens to uncover this plot. The king just happens to have some insomnia. He just happens to look at this book of memorable deeds, and someone just happened to have recorded what Mordecai did. 
And Mordecai, uh, the king, just happened to ask who this was. And Haman just happened to be coming to the king's palace at the time that all of this is discovered. All of this is showing us that God is in control, orchestrating every single little detail. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 14, this is a very important verse in this story. kind of highlights this. Chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai is talking to Esther, and, and he says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's an affirmation of the sovereignty of God. He's saying, I know that God is going to save us. I know that he is faithful to his covenantal promises. I know that God is going to find a way to deliver us from this. It is going to happen, Esther. But then he goes on and says, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, who knows whether God has been orchestrating all of these things so that you, Esther, could step forward and do something very special for God's kingdom. Maybe God has been controlling all of these things so that you could step forward. Now, now again, there's this idea that God seems absent, and, and this is the, the sub-point here, or another way that I'm going to state this point, and it's this, that in those times when God seems absent, he is actually most present. There's every reason for Esther to think, and Mordecai to think God is absent. I mean, number one, they're in exile, right? They're away from the temple, they're away from home. But not only that, an edict has just been issued to destroy the Jews. I can imagine that Esther and Mordecai were probably saying, what's going on? Where is God? What's going to happen to his promises? He said, we're going to, to grow and flourish throughout the earth. And now we're about to be annihilated? Has God forgotten? Is God absent? And what this book is telling us through Mordecai is, no, Mordecai, with his faith in God, realizes that God is sovereign, that he is up to something. He's up to something. You can't see it right now, but he's doing something. And, and maybe you right now, you're in a place where you feel like God is absent. You just feel like he's forgotten you. You don't see his work. You don't see his activity. You're looking for a job. You can't find it. You're feeling lonely. Friends are not coming. You've been single. You want to be married. You're, you started a ministry and it's floundering. You look at the conditions of our country and you see moral deterioration and you're just saying it looks like God has disappeared. It looks like he's forgotten. You have a son or a daughter who's not walking with the Lord. You've been praying for this. It seems like God is ignoring you. It seems like God is absent. Friends, I want to encourage you. He is not absent. He is at work. He is with you. He's doing things. You might not be able to see it. But he's sovereign. He is orchestrating events for your good, for your sanctification. He's doing that. You have to behold that through the eyes of faith. Charles Spurgeon said, God's sovereignty in the midst of trials is a pillow on which you can rest your head. You can take rest in knowing that he is doing something. Here's the way a guy named Don Fortner put it. Regarding God's sovereignty, our Heavenly Father wisely mixes exactly the right measure of bitter things and sweet to do us good. Too much joy would intoxicate us. Too much misery would drive us to despair. Too much pleasure would ruin us. Too much defeat would discourage us. Too much success would puff us up. 
Too much failure would keep us from doing anything. Too much criticism would harden us. Too much praise would exalt us. Our great God knows exactly what we need. He's at work. I heard this story of a, a guy who was shipwrecked, wound up on an island, called out to God, please rescue me. Didn't seem to be any answer. So he built a hut. He'd collected a few belongings. He put his belongings in the hut. He went out looking for food. He came back and he found that his hut had burned down. Caught fire and burned down. Where's God? I called for him to rescue me, and the one thing that I have is burned to the ground. And then a ship comes up, and people get out to rescue him. And he says, how did you know I was here? They say, we saw the smoke signals. We saw the smoke signals. In the midst of the worst thing that was happening to him, the best thing was happening to him. And that God was calling for his deliverance in answer to his prayer. God is sovereign over every circumstance of your life. That's the first thing. Lay your head on that pillow. But the second thing is this. You are responsible in every circumstance of your life. Now, I didn't say responsible for every circumstance of your life. There are many circumstances that, that happen, things that happen in our lives over which we don't have control. But in the midst of your circumstance, you are responsible to act in faith. And, and that's what we see, that this is remarkable. There's an affirmation of the sovereignty of God here. But, but look what happens again in verse 14. Look back to this verse again. Mordecai speaking to Esther. And he says, God has arranged all these circumstances, Esther, for your good so that you may act. And God's going to deliver. God's going to deliver, Esther. Couldn't Esther have responded to that and said, oh, well, if God's going to deliver, then why do I have to do anything? God is sovereign. I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back and wait. I can just sit back and watch God work, right? Is that what sovereign, God's sovereignty means for you? You don't have to pray. You don't have to evangelize. You don't have to send resumes out. You don't have to share your faith. doesn't matter. God is sovereign. That's... That's not the attitude Esther takes. Esther hears that God is going to do it, and yet what she does is she takes action. Verse 16, go, gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast. <laughs> We're going to fast about this. And not only is everybody else going to fast, I'm going to fast too. I'm going to fast alongside you. And then she goes to the king, and she calls for this feast. She's thinking wisely. She's thinking shrewdly. I'm going to talk to them while they're drunk. I mean, I don't know if that's what she had in mind, but we're going to have a feast here. And in fact, in the first feast, she decides this is not the right time. I'm going to wait for the next feast. She calls for another one. This, this is a wise woman who's reading the circumstances and acting as responsibly as she possibly can. And so another way to word this point is that God's sovereignty is not an excuse, friends, for you to be passive. Maybe you're just overwhelmed with your circumstances right now and you're taking a kind of a fatalistic attitude. And Christians can do this sometimes when they hear about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. What will be will be. Sometimes people 
say, and, and they check out, and they stop looking to the scriptures, and they stop looking for counsel, and they stop praying, and they stop listening. Is that you? Are you in that place now? You, you are just not listening because you've resigned yourself to what God is going to do. That is not Esther's attitude. She knows that God has not forgotten her. She knows that God has not abandoned her. And so she keeps seeking and keeps acting responsibly in the faith that God will act. It's a question that's very often asked is, if God is sovereign over all things, why do we pray? Right? I mean, that's a very common question. If God is sovereign, what's the use of praying? Well, here's the way a guy named Douglas Kelly said it. The sovereign God on his throne has arranged his plan in such a way that the prayers of the saints are one of the major means he uses to accomplish his final goal. That's why you should keep praying, because God's going to use your prayers. Another guy named B.M. Palmer says this, in the exercise of his sovereignty and goodness, God interposes the prayer of the creature as the channel through which his favor, it should say, his favor shall descend. God is sovereign. He is orchestrating everything for your good. But friends, this is not an excuse for you to be passive, but to seek God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Um, one last thing. The, the, the reason for all of this talk about God's sovereignty, friends, is, is not in the end just so that God can do what you want him to do. You know, God's not a, a genie in a bottle that comes out and grants you three wishes. We don't look to God's sovereignty as if it's just God going to do everything to make me happy. But, but God's sovereign purposes will do everything to make sure that you're saved. That, that's really what's at stake here. I mean, that's what happened in the book of Esther, right? God worked out everything to make sure that the Jews were saved. And the same is true for you. That's what Romans 8.28 means. God is working together all things for your good, for your salvation. And so in this book, we see wonderful allusions to the gospel. Just as Esther goes and intercedes before the king, goes into the throne room, it's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you entered into the throne room of the heavenly king. Just as Esther was willing to perish for the Jews. If I perish, I perish. So was Jesus willing to die for you. Esther was spared. Jesus wasn't. He was willing to die, and he did die. And just as Haman was destroyed by the gallows that he made to destroy Mordecai, so was Satan destroyed by the cross that he hoped would destroy Jesus. And imagine Satan just rubbing his hands together as Jesus was dying on the cross, thinking that this was finally the end. And yet what he didn't know was that Jesus would rise again out of the grave in three days and crush his head in fulfillment of the promise from Genesis 3.15 that got this whole story started about the descendant that would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the Savior who has come to die for you. Will you turn to him, trust him, live for him, love him, and live in the assurance that all things are working together for your good, for his glory? Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is so full of wisdom and truth and grace for us. 
Lord, help us to be people who trust you and help us to be people who are active in our pursuit of you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.